Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, today we actually jump into the book of Acts. Uh, Last week was a rather lengthy introduction to why we're doing this particular book, but today we're actually going to turn to the text itself. So if you have your Bibles with you, you want to open them to Acts chapter 1. And we'll go ahead and read through uh, the whole first chapter. That doesn't mean that we'll get through the whole first chapter today, but it does mean that we'll at least begin there. So if you want to follow along, I'll go ahead and read aloud. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in his ministry." Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Not appetizing uh, meal conversation, I recognize. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us all during the time of the Lord Jesus, when he went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and that lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We said last week that the book of Acts is a second volume to a two-volume work, Uh, the first volume being the gospel according to Luke. And we know that for a number of reasons, but the primary reason is because both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are dedicated to the same person. 
or group of people. Uh, if you look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you will notice that it is dedicated to a man or a person or persons named Theophilus. Now, I say a man or persons or a collection because the word Theophilus can be a proper name, but it can also be a name that simply means beloved of God. So it could be a fellowship. But that's not really what's important. What's important is that the book is dedicated to Theophilus. The same thing is true of the book of Acts. It's dedicated to Theophilus. So this is really intended to be a second volume to a two-volume work. Um, as you know, in the first century, they did not have books like we have them. Uh, they wrote everything on scrolls, uh, generally animal hides. And these scrolls were about 35 feet in length. They got any longer than that, they became bulky and unwieldy. And that oftentimes determined the length of some of the books that we have in the Bible. Uh, most of the Gospels, for example, when they're written out on a scroll and folded, come out to about 35 feet. Uh, the same is true, for incidentally, for the book of Romans. And so when you un unroll a scroll of the Gospel of Luke, you get to about 35 feet, and you can't go any further than that. So if you wanted to write more, you had to do a second book. And that's what we have here, the second volume. Now, what is interesting is how this book is described. If you look at Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse, four, verse 1, Luke writes, and Luke, of course, is the author. We talked about that last week. He writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, what's critical there is that he said, In the first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That word began implies a continuing action, which tells us that in the second book, Luke is going to write about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. The only problem is we've just read through and we discover that lo and behold, beginning at verse 6, we have the account of the ascension. So Jesus ascends and he's no longer with the disciples. So you have to ask yourself, well, how could he continue to do anything when he's no longer there? Well, as we are going to see, he's going to do that in and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So really, a better name for this book, and it's, you heard me say this last week, is the continuing acts of Jesus Christ in and through the lives of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But because that is a rather lengthy title, we refer to this simply as the Acts of the Apostles. But it's really not their acts. It's the acts of Jesus in and through their lives. First thing to note about this introduction to the book of Acts in this first chapter is that after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples, we're told, and he spends time with them over the course of 40 days. Now, it's not continuing. Uh, we're told that Jesus was traveling back and forth from the Father's presence to be with his disciples. So he was not lodging with them over the course of those 40 days. But he would appear to them from time to time, just as he did after the resurrection. Uh, you recall when they were in the upper room, Jesus suddenly appeared in their midst. And he said, peace be with you. And you'll recall that the first time that he did that, Thomas wasn't there. And so when the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord, what did Thomas say? He said, yeah, right. He said, I don't know what you guys have been up to. I don't know what you've been smoking or whatever, but there's no way that Jesus has been here. And they said, we've seen the Lord. And he said, unless I can take my hands and put them, my fingers in the nail prints and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And sometime later, we're told that Jesus did what? Appeared in their midst again, and Thomas was with them this time. So it's that kind of scenario. Jesus is not with them like he had been continually over the course of those previous three years. He's appearing from time to time, and he's spending time with them. And that's what we have taking place here in this period. And every time that Jesus meets with them, we're told that he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We need to understand, and I can't emphasize this enough, 
that this book is really about the kingdom of God. This is a central theme of Jesus' entire ministry. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that you really cannot understand the Christian gospel unless you understand that it is about the kingdom of God. So often, we Christians think that the whole message of the Bible is about our own personal salvation. And don't get me wrong, that is vitally important. You heard John Guest talk about it last night. It is. But so often we think that the whole point of coming to know Jesus Christ is to get your ticket punched and get out of this rotten world and go to be with the Lord when you die. And that is not the picture at all that we find. What God is doing is He is redeeming you and me for a future, yes, but also for the present. That we might serve to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, You heard me say last week that this is a central theme of everything that Jesus did over the course of his three-year ministry. His ministry begins with John the Baptist, who is really, in many respects, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John appears on the scene, and you know that all of Jerusalem, we're told, was going out to him. They were enamored by John the Baptist. He was an interesting character. He wore wore camel's uh, clothing, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he proclaimed a message to the people. And what was the message? It was a message of repentance. That's right. Repent. What does the word repent mean? It means to turn around. It means to do a 180. The idea is that you are going down a path, but it's a path that leads to destruction. Bridge out. And what you need to do is stop what you're doing and turn back. Come back. And that's the message that John was proclaiming to the people. He's saying, now is the time to stop. You're on a road to destruction. Stop what you're doing and come back. But why should they do that? Why should they do it right now? Now, why was the time to stop now? You know, so often you meet with people and they say, you know, and I I, I deal with young people from time to time who will say this to me. I know I need to get right with God. I I know I need to get my act together. and, And someday I intend to do that. Anybody ever read St. Augustine's Confessions? If you've never read them, they're a wonderful read. I encourage you to do so. There's a great line in them. Uh, Augustine, when he was young, we think of him as the great saint, uh, the great doctor of the church. Uh, But Augustine, in his early days, came from a very affluent family, and he lived a wild lifestyle. He was the prodigal son. And his confessions are the story of his life. (laughs) and how Christ came in and took hold of him, basically by the scruff of the neck, and transformed him. But there's this wonderful line, I think it's so revealing and so honest. He was enjoying life and enjoying the company of young ladies. Lots of young ladies. And as God began to work on his life, he realized that he needed to change his lifestyle. But he wasn't ready yet. And there's this great line in the Confessions where he is praying, O Lord, make me chaste, dot, 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 but not yet. (laughs) You know, so often that's the way it is with us, don't we? We think that we have all the time in the world, and we can go ahead, and eventually we can get serious about our faith, serious about Christ, serious about the kingdom of God, but in the meantime... We're going to live it up. Dot, dot, dot. Not yet. Not yet. Now, John was saying, don't wait till tomorrow. The time is now to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come. And then just a few days later, we're told that he sees Jesus along the banks of the Jordan River. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. There it is. There's the kingdom. There is the one who is ushering in this new age, this new world order. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus' whole ministry begins with John the Baptist proclaiming repentance because the kingdom has arrived. And the Lord's own ministry is characterized by messages about the kingdom of God. Um, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus talks about Uh, the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically about kingdom living in a fallen world. What does it mean to be a citizen of the king and a subject of this kingdom? 
in Mark chapter 4 and following, you have all of these parables, and they're all parables about the kingdom of God. Keep your finger there in Acts and flip back, if you will, to Mark. This is just to give you a, a sample. In Mark chapter 4, verses 26 and following. After the parable of the sower, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of the seeds of the earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests with it. And with many other such parables, he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. So even Jesus' parables, you see, are about the kingdom of God. And we discover in the end that it's Jesus' claim to messiahship and to kingship in particular that ultimately gets him crucified. Uh, When Jesus was brought by the Jewish religious leaders before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, Pilate interrogated him. It was a serious matter. There were many people that were calling for this man's uh, death. Pilate wanted to know what it was all about, and so he interrogated Jesus. And we're told that he found no fault with Jesus. He could find no charge. He had broken no Roman law. And so he basically came out and he washed his hands. Remember that symbolic? He washed his hands. That's where we get the expression. I washed my hands of it. That's what Pilate did. He washed his hands and he said, I find no fault with this man. He's done nothing wrong, and therefore I'm going to flog him simply because I want to satisfy you, but then I'm going to release him. And the response that came back was this, you cannot release this man, for he claims to be a king, and we have no king but Caesar. Now, it was probably the most disingenuous thing the Jewish religious leaders ever said, because they hated the Romans. They despised them. But at that point, they hated Jesus even more. And when Pilate heard that Jesus was claiming to be a king, he had no choice but to have him executed. Because to proclaim, you know, we see the bumper stickers today, or you see a billboard as you're traveling up I-95 that says, Jesus is Lord. Now, we even had an Episcopal church in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, an Episcopal church, mind you, that used to have a a sign that was on the top that was all lit up, big bold letters, Jesus is Lord. We don't see anything dramatic about that. That's sort of commonplace to us. But you have to understand that in the first century, to proclaim Jesus as Lord was to say that Caesar was not. And that was sedition. And it was punishable by death. And ultimately, that's what happened to Jesus. His claim to be a king meant that there was one king, one sovereign, one Lord, and Caesar was not it. And it brought him his death. So, you need to understand here as we begin the book of Acts that this is about the kingdom of God. The whole thing is about the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus Christ. Now, the question that arises, well, what kind of a kingdom is the kingdom of God? This was a question that the disciples themselves were really wrestling with. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So Jesus appears to them over the course of 40 days. He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, this central theme. And the disciples ask the question, well, when are you going to establish it or rather restore it? Now, the word restore implies that it's the return of something that had once been. So we understand almost immediately what the disciples are thinking of when they think of a kingdom. They are thinking of a reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty. 
This is going to be a return of the glory days of Israel. When King David sat upon the throne and he was followed by his heir Solomon the wise. And Israel was great among the princes of the earth. And they are expecting that day when Israel will be reestablished once again. So when they're thinking of a kingdom, they're thinking of this kind of a kingdom. A kingdom that comes by power and by might. Jesus was thinking about that kind of a kingdom. The first kingdom, a sovereign is lifted up upon a throne. In the second kingdom, the sovereign is lifted up upon a tree. Uh, That first image up there, anybody know who that is? It's Alexander the Great. Whoever said it's Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great, as you know, was one of the most influential and really iconic figures in all of history. By the time that he was 29 years old, he had by conquest, both military and diplomatic, controlled the greater part of the world of his day. His holdings extended from Greece to Egypt to Pakistan. Uh, His accomplishments were so extraordinary that he was regarded by many people as a god. He was an extraordinary figure. And even today, 2,000 years plus later, his influence is still felt in the world today. There are still songs and plays and poems that are written about this man. His image still appears on coinage and currency throughout the world. He was able to attract thousands and thousands of people to his banner over the course of his life. And when you think about all of that, it's even more astonishing when you realize he never lived past his 33rd birthday. An extraordinary figure. And when you think about it, it's a really interesting comparison, isn't it, with Jesus? There's some striking similarities. Jesus also died at the same age. 33 years of age. Jesus, too, was able to attract thousands to his banner. He was a charismatic kind of person. Many people regarded Jesus as a what? As a God. Both of these men established their claims of kingship by riding into places. Uh, if, If there's anything that's associated with Alexander the Great, you always see him mounted. His horse was almost as famous as he was, Bucephalus. He would ride into conquered territory, the conquering hero. Jesus made his claim of kingship by riding into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, mounted on a donkey. So you see, the similarities between these men is remarkable. Jesus established a kingdom. But what's even more remarkable is the dissimilarities. The differences between these two men. When Alexander the Great realized that there was no more territory to be conquered, do you know what he did? He went into his tent and he literally drank himself to death. He was in a fit of depression. There was nothing more for him to do. And so he went in and he died of alcohol poisoning. Jesus, on the other hand, at the age of 33, willingly went to his death prepared to do what the Father had commanded him to do. Alexander the Great established a great kingdom. It began to disintegrate just a few years after his death. Jesus established a kingdom. And it is a kingdom in a world without end. It continues to this very day. You and I are sitting here in this room, some of you taking notes on the book of Acts because of the kingdom that Jesus Christ established. There's an old poem, I won't read the whole thing to you, but it's an old poem called One Solitary Life. Perhaps you've read it. Of all the parliaments that ever sat, of all the navies that ever sailed, of all the governments that have ever ruled, they have not had as profound an effect upon this world as that one solitary life, the life of Jesus Christ. So what kind of a kingdom did Jesus Christ come to establish? A very different kind of a kingdom than the one that the disciples were imagining. And I would venture to say perhaps a very different type of kingdom than the one that you and I imagine. So what were the profound misunderstandings that the disciples had about the kingdom? 
Well, it's helpful to look again at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and following. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples' post-resurrection expectations were at an all-time high. Uh, Remember, I said last week that these men had left a great deal to follow Jesus. They had left their families and their friends. James and John, we're told, had left their father in the boat and gone after Jesus. And for three years, they slept at his side, they ate their meals with him, and they saw him perform extraordinary deeds, raise people from the dead, cleanse the lepers, open the eyes of the blind, make the lame leap for joy, all of those things. And then all of a sudden, their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations came crashing down on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. It was like a roller coaster ride for them. Any idea out there like roller coasters? Well, some of you don't. And you don't like them because you don't like that up and down, that uncertainty that comes along with the thrill of the ride. Well, that's the way it was for these disciples. It was up and down. It had been that way for three years, but it was particularly so over the course of the previous three days. (laughs) But now... The very Jesus who'd been crucified, whose lifeless and limp body they had seen taken down from the cross and laid in that cold, dank tomb, they saw him alive again. And they did. They put their fingers into the nail prints. They put their hand into his side, and they saw that it was really him. Everything, their dreams, their hopes, had been resurrected along with his body. And they were on the top of the world. And since Jesus had talked so much about that kingdom and a kingdom that would come, a kingdom and a world without end, they assumed that now that he'd been resurrected, this was the time when the king of kings would establish his kingdom. But again, they still had a very myopic view of what that kingdom was like. The first thing was that they imagined that it was going to be a physical kingdom. Uh, We see that again by that word restore. A kingdom that is going to be restored was a kingdom that had already existed. Again, they're thinking in terms of a Davidic dynasty coming back. The glory days. Uh, It's interesting to note that the Germans in the 1930s referred to their dream as the Third Reich. Which meant that there were two previous Reichs. Well, that's what they're thinking. A new kingdom. A a second kingdom. Davidic age, and Jesus being the son of David would be the heir, great David's greater son. Second thing they were thinking was that this kingdom was going to be an ethnically restricted kingdom. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to what? Israel. This is going to be an ethnically pure kingdom. No Samaritans. No Gentile dogs. It's going to be a pure kingdom. It's going to be God's people and God's people alone. That's the second thing they're thinking. And the third thing that they're thinking is that it's going to be a geographically restricted kingdom. In other words, the headquarters is going to be where? Jerusalem. Of course it's going to be in Jerusalem. Where else could it be? They were so troubled on that occasion when they were walking by the temple on one occasion and they looked up and they saw all of those magnificent monuments and and the temple in Jerusalem in the first century really was a sight to behold. Uh, If you've ever been to Jerusalem, and some of you are going to go with me on this trip to the Holy Land, um, you're going to have an opportunity to see what's left of it. There's not much. Uh, Just the outer retaining wall, which is now called the Wailing Wall. But it's made of this beautiful golden stone. There's even an old hymn called Jerusalem the Golden, if you remember it from uh, the hymnal. And it was. Jerusalem was golden. And the temple in particular was made of a polished stone. It was a golden stone. Uh, It was magnificent. And when it was polished, it was like granite. And because the temple sat right up on the Temple Mount, the highest point in Jerusalem, when the sun would rise and reflect off of that granite, it was so brilliant that people said you had to avert your eyes for fear of doing damage. It was an amazing sight. And, and the Jews believed that that's where Jesus dwelt symbolically, or where God dwelt symbolically with his people. And as Jesus is walking along, the disciples are just in awe of this. In much the same way that people were in awe of St. Philip's last night. There were a lot of people there from Beaufort, and they had never been in St. Philip's. And they walked in, and their mouths just dropped open. 
They couldn't believe it. It's magnificent. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he said, you're impressed by all of this. He said, but I tell you, the time is coming when not one stone will be left standing upon another. It will all be thrown down. And they just could not even imagine that. They could not imagine a time when the temple would not be. They could not imagine a time when Jerusalem would not be. And here's the irony. In the span of some of their own lives, Jerusalem would be destroyed. In the year 70 AD, the Roman governor and general Titus would come in and he would sack the city and put over 100,000 people to the sword. But they could not imagine it. They were thinking of a kingdom that would be ethnically centered on just the nation of Israel and it would be headquartered there in Jerusalem. But they are in for a shocking revelation. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 5 that it is not going to be the kind of kingdom they imagine. He says, Go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, It's really interesting uh, to think about what Jesus is saying here. Uh, There are two different Greek words in just that one passage that are translated as our word baptized. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you go back um, to the early days of Jesus' ministry, uh, particularly the Gospel of Mark and to Matthew, uh, you'll see that when John appears, he baptizes with water. But he says, there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When John said, I baptize you with water, the Greek word that he used was bapto. It means to immerse. But he says, there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I cannot untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't use the word bapto there. He uses the word baptizo. Now what's interesting is that scholars knew that both of those words had to do with immersion. But they did not understand the difference between the two. They had no idea what the difference between those two Greek words were. Until, this is one of those wonderful and freaky things of history, they discovered a book of recipes by an early writer named Nicander. And Nicander had a recipe for making pickles. And here's what he said. When you make pickles, you take the vegetable, whether it's a cucumber or whatever it is, and you baptize it in boiling water. And the word that he used there was bapto. But then he says, you take it and you immerse it, you baptize it in the brine, in the vinegar solution. And the word that he used there was baptizo. And all of a sudden, scholars understood the difference between those two terms. The first was a temporary immersion into the boiling water. The second was an immersion that produced a permanent change. You know, when something is pickled, you can't unpickle it. It's a permanent change. It becomes permanently associated with the brine. So John says, I am baptizing you with water, a temporary immersion. But there is one who is coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to produce a permanent change in your life. You'll never be the same again. You're going to be a different person permanently, unalterably associated with Christ. Jesus said, John baptized you with water, but in a few days you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you will never, never be the same again. So Jesus makes it very clear, it is a spiritual kingdom that is coming. It is a spiritual kingdom kingdom. Second thing he makes very clear is that it's going to be a powerful kingdom. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, Earlier in Jesus' ministry with the disciples in the Gospel of John, he had said to them on one occasion that he was going away. And any time Jesus said that to them, they were always filled with angst. They didn't didn't want to think about Jesus leaving. But he made it very clear that he was going to go away, but that he would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and they would, listen to this, do even greater things than he had done. Now you think about that for a moment. If you're Peter, who it's been said the only time he ever opened his mouth in the New Testament was so that he could insert his other foot. You think about James and John, who are just basically hotheads. They're called sons of thunder. They're always speaking and thinking later. And they're always vying for a position of influence and position. It's it's because, you remember, that Jesus was talking about the kingdom, that they got their mother on one occasion to go up to Jesus and plead with him that when he came into his kingdom, that he would allow her two sons to sit one in his right hand and one at his left. And then there's Thomas. There's Thomas who says, unless I can take my fingers and put them into the nail prints, take my hand and put it into the side, I will not believe. You know, these are not the kind of men that you and I would choose to change the world. How many of you have ever read Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, um, Team of Rivals? Well, if you haven't, it's a great book on leadership. It's about Abraham Lincoln and the forming of his cabinet. It's a remarkable book. But when you look at Lincoln's cabinet, you think to yourself, this is a motley crew, most of whom all thought they could do the job better than Lincoln could do the job. And you're thinking to yourself, if you really want to build a coalition, these are not the men. But he used them. And you think about it, Jesus wants to change the world. These are not the men that you would pick. Many people keep saying, well, Donald Trump, the key for Donald Trump is that he surrounds himself with very good people. Well, Jesus did not surround himself with what we would call very good people. They were a motley crew. And yet he makes a promise to them that they will receive power. We said last week the Greek word here is dynamis. It is the word from which we get dynamite. An explosive power is going to come upon these men. Broken, fallen people. Somebody said to me last night, we're really thankful that you're here. And we look forward to your ministry. Let me tell you one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther. Uh, I, I get nervous every time I get into the pulpit. Somebody say, well, you never look nervous. I said, well, looks are deceiving. I'm always a nervous wreck before I get up to preach or to teach. It doesn't make a difference. But the reason I'm able to keep getting up there is something that Martin Luther once said. Remembering the story of Balaam from the Old Testament. Remember that story of Balaam from the Old Testament where God opened the mouth of an ass? Martin Luther once said... God once opened the mouth of an ass. He said, I just trust that he'll do it again. (laughs) These men were the most unlikely candidates to change the world. Certainly unlikely candidates to do even greater things than Christ himself had done. But Jesus said that was what was going to happen. They were going to do greater things than he was going to do. But they were not going to do it in and of their own strength and their own power. They would only do it when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. Listen, that is a message of encouragement to us here at St. Philip's. If you were there last night and you heard John Guest preach, it is true. This parish, and I said it in my first sermon to you, this parish, more than any other congregation in this city, has the potential to make a difference for the kingdom of God in the city of Charleston, but I don't limit it to the city of Charleston. Look at what Jesus said to them. He said, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, that is where they were living. In Judea and Samaria, that is beyond there. And to the end of the world. And they did. Here we are in Charleston, South Carolina, 2,000 years later because of them. Listen, folks, the only limitations placed on us are the ones we place on ourselves. How many of you really believe, be honest, that on the third day of the week, The man came out of the tomb. How many of you really believe that actually happened? Then nothing is impossible. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to the church today. It is an explosive, dynamic power. 
And the only limitations that we have on us are those we place on ourselves by doubt and a lack of faith. And so we're told that this was going to be a powerful kingdom. It was going to be a kingdom of truth. Keep your finger there and Acts and turn to John chapter 18 for just a moment. John chapter 18, verse 33. I made reference to this last week, but it's important to bring it back up again. This is Jesus' trial before the Roman governor. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? There's the charge, you say, claiming to be a king. And Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. So there he's already saying very clearly, It is a kingdom. He is the king, he is the sovereign, but it's not like these earthly kingdoms. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be de- not de- be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the what? To the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus is making it very clear. He's coming to establish a kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a powerful kingdom. And most importantly, it is a kingdom of truth. And it is truth with a capital T. Definite article. The truth. Not a truth. Listen, if there's one thing that this world is craving right now, It is direction. It is clarity. There seems to be a lack of clarity in terms of what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is not. What really brings people joy and contentment? The world is craving the truth. Somebody once asked, well, how how do you evangelize the world? Listen, there's no trick to it. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus himself is attractive. The truth itself is attractive to people who are searching for it. This is going to be a kingdom of truth. But it's going to be a kingdom that advances in a very different way than the kingdoms of this world. It's a great hymn in the hymnal. I'll just read it to you. Perhaps you know it. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Now you listen to that first stanza and you think, ah, sounds like Alexander the Great. Onward, Christian soldiers. We lift our banner song. It goes on in verse 2 to say, Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, conflict, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. But here's the key phrase. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, thy heavenly kingdom comes. Jesus is saying, that's my kingdom. It's not a kingdom that advances by swords loud clashing or the roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy. My kingdom comes. It's that kind of kingdom Jesus was telling the disciples about. And he goes on to say this, and you will be my witnesses to it. You know, that's what we're called to be as Christian people. We are called to be the witnesses to the kingdom of God to live, to talk, to conduct our lives in such a way that people can see that you and I are foreigners in a strange land. Can they tell? You know, some people, when they travel overseas, what they really want to do is they don't want to stand out. They want to blend in. 
But as Christians, we are called to stand out, to be different. And you don't have to work at it. I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about being a Christian. Jesus said you will know them by their what? By their fruit. Well, if a tree is healthy, does it have to work at producing fruit? You, you know if an apple tree is healthy if it's producing fruit. If it's not producing fruit, what good is it? You know, an apple tree is only good for one thing, and that's to produce fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, Jesus said, chop it down and throw it away. If we're living the Christian life, he said, you'll see the fruit. You won't have to work at it. It will be something that happens naturally because you are connected to the vine, because you are healthy. Jesus goes on to say this as well. He says, it's going to be a worldwide kingdom. Verse 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. As I said, Jerusalem was their hometown. That's where they were living at the time, in the upper room. But you're not going to be my witnesses in just Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. Well, where were Judea and Samaria? Judea was that area around Jerusalem. Samaria was the area just to the north. So Jesus is saying, you'll be my witnesses first in your hometown, yes, but not just in your hometown. Where else? In the region and beyond. And finally, he says, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. As Christians, our influence is not just to be felt here in our own community. It is to be felt beyond our own community. For us, that would mean Charleston. Of course, we start here locally. But that influence, that Christian life, that ability to live kingdom, to to experience kingdom living in a fallen world, that is supposed to extend beyond Charleston, into the state of South Carolina, into our country, and indeed to the end of the earth. And I told you last week, one of the most impressive things, one of the most powerful witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Christian church, the history of the Christian church. There is no success story like it in the history of the world. In the short span of only 300 years, these people, a beleaguered, persecuted sect of Judaism, poor people, brought the greatest empire the world had ever known to its knees. And they did that all before the internet. (laughs) And you think about that for a minute. It took them a long time to travel from place to place and preach the gospel. You and I can be in Jerusalem today in less time than it takes to drive from South Carolina to Maine. We live in a small world. The opportunities are extraordinary. That's one of the things that's so exciting about Charleston. I said to you before, Charleston's not a city like Philadelphia or New York or Chicago or London or Paris, but it is a city the world comes to. It's what? The number one destination city in America and something else in the world. Is it number one destination in the world now? The number one destination city in the world. The people are coming here. We don't even have to do the work. God's bringing them here. (laughs) The real question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we, the people of St. Philip's, going to do about that? And you say, well, that's a Herculean task. Do you believe the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week? That's the question. Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? And if that same Holy Spirit is available to us, do you believe that we can do what they did? See, it's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to do it. There is a great scene in the Old Testament where the people are told, the priests and the Levites are told to take the Ark of the Covenant and go down to the Jordan River. And when they get to the river to step in, and the waters will part. And they get down there to the Jordan River, and it is at flood stage. And they stand there on the banks. Because they look at that swirling water, and they're filled with fear. But God said what? When you step into the water, it will part. They had to put their feet in. They had to take the risk. And once they took the risk, the waters parted. You can't stand on the banks, folks. You either get on board with the agenda of Christ or you don't. G. Campbell Morgan was for many years a pastor uh, in London at Westminster Chapel. And he told a story about witnessing a woman 
who was dragged to her death. They used to have trolley carts that came down the street in front of the church, and they never stopped. I don't know if it's still like that in uh, San Francisco today. It would just sort of come slow down, and you sort of had to jump on board. And this woman put one foot on the platform, but she kept one foot on the street, and he watched as she was dragged to her death. He said, that is a picture of the Christian life. He said, when the opportunity to serve the Lord comes along, the question is this, are you going to get on board or not? But you cannot live in such a way that you have one foot on the platform and one foot here. You've got to be all on board. And Jesus' promise to his disciples was that if they were prepared to get on board with the Holy Spirit... They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They would turn the world upside down, inside out, and nothing would ever be the same. Are we prepared to live like that? Are you prepared to get on board? That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It is a mandated kingdom. If you are a Christian today... This is not an option for you. We live in a world in which we have all of these various options. But you need to understand, if you're a Christian, this is not an option for you. Um, some years ago, my dear friend Michael Nazarali, who, was, who preached here this past week, was um, having dinner with me in Beaufort. And we took him to a restaurant that had a very extensive menu. Now, Michael's from England. Um, in fact, he was the first non-white bishop in the Church of England, senior bishop in the Church of England in its history. A really remarkable man, um, just to sit at his feet. He's just extraordinary. He's one of the holiest men I've ever met in my entire life. But I remember sitting down to dinner with him, and he, he's, he eats with the queen. I mean, he, he's, he knows the pope. I mean, he knows everybody. And I had never seen Michael Nazarali flustered until I took him to dinner in Beaufort, South Carolina. And he was totally flustered. Because the woman came along, and as I said, an extensive menu. And she said to him, what would you like to drink? And he said, "Um, I'll have some tea. And she said, do you want sweet tea or unsweetened tea? (laughs) And he said, "Um, uh, the sweetened tea will be fine. And she said, do you want hot tea or do you want cold tea? (laughs) Um, uh, Hot tea, please. And then it came time to order the meal. And he said, I'll have a salad. And she said, do you want the Caesar salad? Or do you want the garden salad? Or do you want the house salad? Oh, well, okay, I'll have the, the, the garden salad. And what dressing would you like? Would you like balsamic? Would you like blue cheese? Would you? And she goes through all of these things. And by the end of it, he was so flustered. And she left the table and he said, this is the problem. He said, there are too many options. And that's the way we look at life, isn't it? Life's a smorgasbord. You can take those things that you like and leave those things that you don't. And we have all of these options. But you need to understand that if you're living as a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, bearing witness to the kingdom of God is not an option. It is a mandate. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? If you feel like it, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It was a mandate. It was a command. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That window, I looked at it every day for three years. That was the window in the Emmanuel Chapel at Virginia Theological Seminary. And it shows Jesus commissioning the disciples, and it had those words, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Unfortunately, the chapel's burned down now, and they had to replace it. But that was the window that I looked at for the three years that I was at Virginia Seminary, reminded of the fact that the whole point of this graduate education was a preparation to do that, to fulfill the Great Commission. But that's not just the responsibility of the clergy. It's interesting to note in the Book of Common Prayer, in the Catechism, where it asks the question, who are the ministers of the church? Anybody know your catechism? Who are the ministers of the church? Catherine, what does it say? It says, lay persons, bishops, priests, 
and deacons. Now, you ask many people, who are the ministers of the church and what are they going to say? These guys. These guys with the collars that wear the stoles, that wear those robes, that climb into that pulpit. They're the ministers of the church. But it's interesting to note the catechism makes it very clear we are all, by virtue of our baptism, called to be the ministers of the church. Every single one of us. To bear witness to Christ and his reconciling work wherever (coughs) we may be. John Stott came and preached at Virginia Seminary when I was there. And he climbed into the pulpit, and I've never forgotten these words. He pointed to that window and to those words, and this is what he said. He said, if you are faithful and serious about that calling, you are going to be unpopular with the world. And he said, and if you are popular with the world, you better take a good hard look at your life and see whether or not you're being faithful to that calling. John Guest said basically the same thing last night. Somebody said they could see my shoulders visibly slump as he was talking there because I was feeling the weight of what he had to say. But it is the truth. We are to proclaim the message what? In season and out of season. When everything's going great, when everything is right with the world and God appears to be on his throne, and when everything is going to hell. That is our calling as Christian people. That is how you change the world. And that is what the book of Acts is all about. It is about establishing the kingdom of God. When we come back next week, we're going to pick up at verses 12 through 26 through the end of the chapter. And we're going to see that this was a time of preparation for the disciples. This was their mandate. This was their charge to go out and change the world, to establish this different kingdom. But they weren't yet ready for it. Anybody out there ever run a marathon? A couple of you. Do you just go out and run a marathon? You train for it, don't you? It involves months, for some people, years of training, of preparation. Well, the disciples were not ready to go out and do this. And so there would be a period, albeit a relatively brief period, but there would be a period of preparation. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. What is involved in the preparation to be the kind of people that change the world? Because if we're going to do that here at St. Philip's, and I believe that God is calling us to do that, and one of the things I told the search committee, I said, I want us to get all the people in place right here and now. And when I mean the people, I don't mean staff members, I mean you. (laughs) I want to get everybody in place and ready to go so that when the blessing comes upon us, we're ready to go. And so often that's what happens. People say, I I want to do it, I want to do it. And then when the opportunity comes, they're not ready to get on board with it. Let me tell you, God is going to start raining down blessings on us. One of the things we need to be prepared for is all the new people that are going to come. Now, there's a shock to you. I want you to know, God's going to bring new people to St. Philip's. I'm counting on it. But like Noah, I want to build the ark before it starts to rain. So, you know, everything we do, we need to evaluate in the light of if God is going to bring new people here because he wants them. They're groping, as John Guest said last night, along that wall looking for that door that ought to be there. And we are standing there at the door, not too far in, not too far out, but our job is to pull them in to make them the subjects of the king of kings so that they can participate in this great calling that we have to change the world. If we are going to do that, then we need to be anticipating that. And we need to be thinking about those newcomers. What do they need? How can we make them feel welcome? How can we make them feel as though they are part of this fellowship so that this great church can go out and make a difference in Jerusalem, Charleston, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Well, if you want to know what that preparation looks like, you'll have to come back next week, and we'll take a look at it. Okay, questions? It's clear as mud, isn't it? Okay, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have made us the citizens of this kingdom and the subjects of this King Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we may not only give lip service to his sovereignty, but... 
We pray that you will transform our hearts. As John prayed last night, that you will take our minds and think through them, take our lips and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, that we may be wholly dedicated unto you. And then just take us and use us for your honor and for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, for the building up of your church, and for the glory of your name. For this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.